1: Dying daily, taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing, have been superseded with name
0: it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zelinsky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zelensky Show. I'm your host, Sheila Zelensky, for January 27, 2015. We have a very powerful program today, folks. Joining me is my guest, Dr. Chuck Baldwin. He is a prolific writer, renowned conservative pastor, and highly acclaimed radio talk show host. He was a Constitution Party's presidential candidate for the 2008 election, He strongly opposes the New World Order, the UN, U.S. Income Tax, the Patriot Act, and fervent assaults on individual liberties in general. He strongly supports the gold standard, the right to keep and bear arms, homeschooling and pro-life legislation, such as the Sanctity of Life Act. He's the author of the incredible Romans 13, the true meaning of submission and to keep or not to keep, why Christians should not give up their guns. He's a man of God on a mission and a one-two punch to the Luciferian elite. He's my kind of guy. Welcome, Dr. Chuck Baldwin, to the program. It's a pleasure to have you back on.
2: Thank you, Sheila. Great to be on your show. Thank you for letting me come on. Well, Chuck, we have a fantastic and very robust
1: audience tonight. And one of the things our newer listeners may not have heard, and I think it bears repeating, months back you wrote a scathing article how today's preachers have become all but neutered and how Christians should not obey. And even though you've long maintained that abject apathy and indifference with today's churchmen is ubiquitous, you went on to say that they're absolutely committed to not being involved. And in fact, said it was Much deeper than apathy, it was apostasy. And after you wrote your article, your email inbox and mailbox were filled with rebukes from pastors and Christians, when you read asinine statements like, if federal agents or troops came to my house and put my wife on the kitchen table and raped her, Romans 13 tells me I could not interfere. If government forces came into my home intent on harming my wife and children, I would not resist. Americans' founding father, were rebels against God. They had no right to fight a war for independence. Subject to a king, even a tyrannical one, is God's will. Anyone who resists civil government is going to hell, and much, much more. Chuck, as I was reading your summary of the replies, I personally couldn't even believe what I was reading. I was absolutely shocked at what I was reading. How stunned were you, Chuck, over the replies of so-called Christians?
2: Well, <laughs> she was... The the sad part of it is, I'm I'm not really shocked anymore. It, it you know I've I've heard mm. these fellows say these kinds of things so often now that I guess I'm becoming a little immune to the shock factor. You, you know, a few years ago, yes, I you know I, I found it very difficult to comprehend that anyone, much less a, a minister of the gospel, could say the things that you just quoted there, and yet. That's exactly what preachers are saying and have said. And I think the problem is is even maybe worse than we would like to think it is. Um, I wrote a column this past week, uh, which has proven to be the most read column I've ever written to date. Uh, The title is New Research, Pastors Deliberately Keeping Flock in the Dark. I quoted a a two-year research project by George Barna, who looked into the uh, political activity and, and the willingness of pastors to you know, be involved in the affairs of state. And basically what he found was that 90% of the American pastors know that the Bible speaks to the salient political issues of our day, but they are deliberately refusing to address those issues. Now, i got to tell you, when you ask me if I'm shocked by something, I was kind of shocked by that. I've talked uh-huh. to so many of these fellows, and, and what I typically hear is, well, this isn't, you know, the Bible doesn't really get into this. This is extra-biblical uh, discussion, and God hasn't called me to that. I mean, you hear that kind of a, of a pitch quite a bit. Right. But Barna's research said, and again, this is a two-year project, a professional study, that 90% of the pastors admitted that, yes, the socio-political issues of the day do relate to Scripture, and Scripture does relate to those issues, but because they're controversial in nature, I choose not to deal with them. So, So what we're dealing with is not an ignorant pulpit we are dealing with a deliberately disobedient pulpit.
1: What's stunning is that 90%, according to that article of Americans Pastors, say they, like you said, they now know that the Bible speaks to all these issues, but they are deliberately determined to not teach these biblical principles. I mean, that is quite a stunning admission, really, isn't it? It is.
2: That's, that's part of the survey that did very much surprise me. Very much. Uh, some of the other parts of the, of the survey did not, but, but that was really surprising to me. Uh, I was surprised, A, that, that that many of the pastors who took the survey would admit that and, and B, that the figure was that high. Um, it really is a stunning admission. And so these Christians out here in the churches that are sitting in congregations where the pastor is not teaching them the, the truth of these on um, these issues is avoiding them they have to now understand that this is purposeful, it is deliberate, it is intentional. This is not ignorance, it's circumstantial. There is a deliberate refusal of pastors to deal with the issues. And not just a deliberate
1: refusal, but apathy and indifference going along with that. I mean, let's take that a bit further. You yourself have said that there's absolutely no doubt in your mind that the biggest reason America's in the mess that they're in today is directly due to the apathy and indifference of the American pulpit. And Steve Quayle has said many times on my show, the silent devil's in the pulpit. I mean, weigh in on this, Chuck, because that is pretty staggering. The churches in the pulpit are the ones that should be on the rooftops screaming about these issues, not the other way around.
2: Well, that's why they're called watchmen. And yeah. they're not not—they're well, not watching anything, or should I say they're watching everything and saying nothing, maybe. But Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and let me give you and let me give you an example of 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 what you just said, and this will take just a minute to develop. There, in, in 1995, a good friend of mine, uh, who was a commander uh, in the Navy at that time, he was stationed at 29 Palms, California. He was the author of what what became the famous 29 Palms Survey, a survey that was given to the Marine Corps personnel at that time, and it was a lengthy survey. There was I don't know a couple hundred questions or more. But there were two or three questions in the middle of it that really stunned everybody at the time. And one of the questions was, if you were given an order to fire your weapon upon the American citizen, would would you comply with that order? Now, again, this is in the mid-'90s. Back at that time when that survey was conducted, 25% of the Marines said, yes, they would fire on the American citizenry if commanded to do so. Well, now skip forward to last year, 2013. A very similar survey was conducted at the same military installation, 29 Palms, California. And in the midst of the survey, that question, that one particular question, was reasked of the Marines that were taking the survey last year. Guess what the percentage was in 2013? In the mid-90s, it was 25%. Last year, 2013, same question, same installation, a new crop of Marines now the response was two-thirds, 66% of the Marines said, yes, they would fire their weapons on the American citizenry if if commanded to do so. Now, here's my point. How could that happen? I mean, how could it be that many young men, Marines uh, of all things, could say that they would fire on the American people? And here's the answer. The answer is because of the silence of the pulpits. It is the pulpits that have created this problem. Think about it. How many of those Marines that took that survey came from evangelical churches? They grew up in Sunday school. They went to Christian youth camps. They went to Christian youth groups. They went to church on Sunday. They had Christian parents. I mean, there's a large percentage of the Christian churches that send young people into the military. I mean, it might be the highest single group that, that takes young people into the military or sends, I should say, young people into the military, would be, would be evangelical churches. So you have to know that of those 66% of the Marines who answered that way, that a good, sizable percentage of them were raised in church, and they would call themselves Christians. And yet they were—they answered yes. They would fire on the American people, if told to do so. So this is a—this is the problem of the pulpits. You know, we can't blame the schools. We can't blame the government. We can't blame higher education. We can't blame the media. The pastors have the responsibility to teach the moral code of conduct to their people. I mean, that's—that's one yeah. for for churchmen. Now here we have a generation. Of young people that have grown up in America's churches, they go off into the military, and now two thirds say they are willing to fire their weapons on the American people if told to do so. Okay? Again, that shows you how the churches and the pastors have refused to teach the truth of these issues and the ramifications for doing so. I mean,
1: Tom Horn and others have said on my program that today's church is just absolutely unrecognizable. As a matter of fact, he said if his parents were alive and walked in a church today, they'd probably try to cast out demons because it's absolutely just, you know, I'm paraphrasing something you said, but it's so profound and it's interesting because when you look at the Apostle Paul, especially his ministry, he didn't say, well, you know, we better focus on the prosperity gospel and, oh, how's our attendance and our offerings and our programs? And, hey, wait, what's our building square footage again? I mean, they didn't have stately buildings. They couldn't get on TV and beg like today's pocketists. but they turned the world upside down. These guys in the early church were often imprisoned and beaten and stoned and starving, thirsty, naked, generally hungry, and compare that talk today to these fat cats at their big bank accounts and their jets and lavish lasciviousness it's quite staggering isn't it
2: well yeah in that same survey that you're referring to George Barna that, that I mentioned in my latest column yeah we mentioned the five points of success that pastors enumerated in the survey in other words what, what will they well, what are they all about they're all about success having a successful church okay well how do you define? success. Well, George Barna asked them specifically, how do you define success? And he gave the results. And basically, there were five points. And the five points were attendance, giving or or offerings, number of programs, number of staff, and square footage of the facilities. Those are the five criteria that pastors use to determine success. So anything controversial, such as talking about a political issue, would, that would jeopardize any, any one of those would cause them to not speak to that issue. And, and in the same column, that's when I wrote, you alluded to that as well, uh, I, I, I compared to the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he gave what I call his ministerial pedigree. He said, you know, are, you, are they a minister of Christ? I more. Okay, so what is the pedigree of his ministry? Well, here's what it was. Stripes above measure, in prisons frequently, in deaths often, beaten with rods, stone, perils, weakness, painfulness, hunger and thirst, cold and nakedness. Not one word about attendance or giving
1: or programs
2: or staff or or square footage of the buildings. I mean, everything has been turned upside down completely. And, of course, I think we have these megachurch pastors like Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, And these fellows are the ones that have, I think, created this successful church, quote, quote, phenomenon that pastors are driven by today. I
1: challenge anyone to go walk through a Christian bookstore and ask which ones are the most popular and look at the glossy covers of these five steps to become like me. I mean, are you kidding me? You've pastored a 501c3 church. You know, you've got the letters from the IRS. Here's the things you can do. Here's the things you can't, you know, what, twice, three times a year. Ninety-five percent of those
2: letters, they're followed
1: to the T by these submitting pastors, aren't they?
2: Yes, they are. And, and yes, you're right. I, I did pastor 501c3 church for many years. And sometimes t- uh, two to three times a year I, w- I would get an information packet in the mail Usually, it would come from a law firm, uh, a law firm that was working at the behest of the IRS. Uh, I, I don't, I can't remember if it actually came from the IRS or not. It may have, but it usually came from some law firm. And inside the the, the pamphlet, the material, it would say, uh, you know, since you're a 501c3 pastor, here's what you can do, and then bullet points. And here's what you can't do, and then bullet points. And then here's what the church can do, bullet points, and what the church can't do. And of course, I would just, I would just take those things and throw them in the garbage and pay attention to them. <laughs> and, and there's, and and there are, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands, of pastors like that around the country that are in five hundred one c three churches and they are ignoring these things and they are speaking out boldly in spite of that. But the problem is, they are really a small, very small minority. The vast majority of the pastors. When they read those pamphlets, you're right. They they study them and they follow them to a T. And when you suggest that they should speak out on, on you know name the issue, and they remember what those what you know what that pamphlet said that they can and can't do, why they will they will resist totally the suggestion that they should delve into these things because after all. You know, they don't want to jeopardize their 501c non-profit tax-exempt status.
1: Here's things you can and can't do, be nice little minions. I mean, the Pharisees wanted to silence Jesus. I mean, it's like the modern-day elitists have taken over, you know, silence the truth. When anyone such as yourself attempts to even encourage our Christian brothers and sisters to resist an unconstitutional or otherwise reprehensible government policy, what, what, what do we hear, Chuck? We hear the retort. What about Romans 13? I mean, of course, mm-hmm. when we Christians submit to government, I mean, would you agree that for most part, Romans 13 is always their escape clause from responsibility? And it, you know, this submit to no, you know, government no matter what, it's a nonsensical interpretation of Romans 13, but it's preached by the vast majority. Would you agree that the same devilish doctrine that Hitler promoted during the German church's rise to Nazism?
2: Well, that's exactly the same. Absolutely, exactly the same, and, and the thing about it is, is that it, it, it is so antithetical to to scripture. Now, it, it's like Romans thirteen, and they use one other one in, in the in the book of First Peter, and they they, they have created a, a doctrine around that one passage of scripture to the exclusion of the of the totality of the Word of God. That's why my son and I, as you know, Tim's a constitutional attorney, and a couple years ago he and I put together a book that we call Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission, because of this very, very thing that you're discussing now. We saw the churches relying on Romans 13 as this crutch and this excuse for them never to get involved, and, and we knew we had to address it from a biblical point of view. So we went into the entirety of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, we looked at the preponderance of scriptural evidence and we and we show that from the beginning of mankind all the way through the old testament into the new testament all the way to the end of mankind that never did god ever expect that his children his people should submit to the subjugation of tyrants because you know this is what god would have them to do that they should never resist never say no to Evil, No matter how horrific it might be, because it happens to stem from some kind of a governmental agency. That, that is so ludicrous. Every authority vested in man is a limited jurisdictional authority. There's only one sovereign in a Christian's life, and that's the Lord God. And when we give sovereignty to, to any human authority... Whatever that authority might be, what we have done, and this is what the, these these preachers have done. I've, some of them I don't think have, have realized this, but they've they've they have made government an idol. They've literally supplanted the sovereignty of the Lord God with government, because only God is unlimited in authority. He has power and authority over all of our lives, and to Him we must give submission. But all human authority under God is limited and jurisdictional. There are boundaries as to what the authority can and cannot do. And when they attempt to go beyond the authority that God has established for them, they then become tyrannical. Yea, they become a God, small g, to the person that they're trying to subject. And, And to submit to that, for a pastor to say, you must submit to this small g God, is idolatry. I mean the very first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. So what these pastors and churches are doing by teaching this and you use the word devilish and I would concur with with that word. It is devilish. Anytime you would supplant the authority and sovereignty of the Lord God with a small g god, no matter what it is, call it government, call it whatever you want. You are committing sacrilege and idolatry. And and that's exactly what is going on when they teach this erroneous interpretation of Romans 13.
1: Well, and I like what you said about this limits to authority, because and a good example you've used before is, a father and husband has the authority in their home, but doesn't give them the power to abuse their wife and children. You know, an employer has authority on the job, but doesn't give them the power to control the private lives of his employees. And even a pastor in the, in the church, you know, it doesn't give him the power to tell all employees in their personal business what to do. So, all human authority, as you said, is limited in nature, and no man has unlimited authority over the lives of other men. And you mentioned something very important when you asked this question. You said, Did Moses violate God's principle of submission to authority when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster? Uh, did Elijah violate God's principle? When it came to Ahab and Jezebel, did David violate God's principle? I mean, you can go on and on to Daniel, to the Hebrew children, right to John the Baptist. And when it came to Golden King Herod for his infidelity, did all these Christian martyrs then, Chuck, violate God's principle of submission to authority?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's why I say whenever they start teaching this, it's, it's, it's lunacy. Because the, if you were to take out of the Scripture all of the examples of stories where the men and women of God said no to some form of civil government. The manner in which they said no is, you know, that's discussion for another day. But they said no. They said no. And when you look at the the, the myriad examples of Scripture that are devoted to that, if you were to remove those examples from the Scripture, (laughs) I'm not sure what the percentage would be, but I would think it would be somewhere... Maybe up to forty percent, thirty-five to forty percent of the entire scripture would be eliminated from the Bible. When you stop and think about all the way from from the Old Testament and and the examples of the patriarchs, all the way through the examples that you just use in the Old Testament, and then into the New Testament, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul himself, the man who wrote Romans chapter thirteen, spent more time in jail than he did out of jail. Yeah. Whenever he was. And and the, Paul
1: actually made it clear that our submission to civil authority must be predicated on more than fear of governmental retaliation. I mean, absolutely. notice he said, "Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscious sake." I mean, meaning our obedience to civil authority is more than just because they say so. It's a matter yes. of also conscious, wouldn't you say?
2: Oh no, that's no, that's what that's what the scripture says. You quoted it, you quoted it exactly right. And of course, we put all this in the book. But, yeah, that's exactly right. Our submission to authority is not simply because of, of the fear of reprisal, for the right. fear of what the government may do because we have violated the law. But it's a matter of conscience in our heart as to what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And when government says that we are to do or not do something, that we know in our heart is right or wrong, as the example may be, well, then we've got to fall back to that conscience. When what, and what is conscience? Conscience is the, is the response of the heart that is in submission to God you know that that's what our conscience is. So when our conscience is violated what that means is the the, the authority and the sovereignty of God is abridged. And so men are saying that, these pastors are saying that we are supposed to we're supposed to negate, we're supposed to uh, silence the, the conscience of God in our heart about right or wrong and submit instead to this small god government. Uh, that, that's lunacy. Again that's why Paul put it in the in the text that it's not merely a matter of fear of reprisal. I mean, otherwise, you know, what you're left with, if you you take the other position, if if conscience doesn't matter and if truth doesn't matter and if the lordship of of Christ doesn't matter and the sovereignty of God doesn't throw all that out and say, okay, no, what what do we have left? We have Hail Caesar. We are about to die. Salute you.
1: We must think and reason for ourselves regarding the justness, I guess, and righteousness of government's laws. And because let's face it, there are times when civil authority may need to be resisted—either governmental abuse of power or the violation of conscience—or both could precipitate e- civil disobedience.
2: Well, and and the beautiful thing about and, and and I think the more damaging indictment against the churches in America today is that we don't—we're not under a monarchy.
1: <laughs> Why not? There's no king here. There's, There's no, no king <laughs> here.
2: You know, the people are king in yeah. in America. We we are the we are the government when you really when you you know dig through all the of, of the fancy uh, definitions it comes back to we the people. This is supposed to be a nation of by and for the people. The, the constitution and everything about it was written so that the people would be able to of their own will, of their own accord change the government. To be able to uh, take out the elements that are that are bad and add the elements that are good, it was all designed so that it would not be a top-down right. government, but rather a bottom-up government. So, I mean, this argument about the king, and I know that you know you hear that a lot, but we got to remember that you know there is no king here. So, when we talk about the, you know the, the the what is the uh, the powers that be in, in, in Romans chapter thirteen. Well for us in America, basically it's the Constitution. The Constitution is the is the supreme law of the land. Every person, including the elected civil magistrates are bound to submit to the Constitution. So when you when you look at the form of government that we have in America, so you say, okay, so what, what you're saying is if we are to totally submit without question reservation, what any, anything that a civil magistrate might say to us, no matter how egregiously evil and wicked it might be, well, wait a minute, according to our law, the civil magistrate must submit to the supreme law of the land. So who really is in violation of Romans 13 now? Is it yeah. a citizen or is it the civil magistrate who <laughs> has violated the Constitution? You see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no single governing official in the country. America's supreme law doesn't rest with any man or group or anything else. You just alluded to that. I mean, not even President or Congress or the Supreme Court. And as you just said, Chuck, in America, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And under the laws... Every single governing official publicly promises to submit to the Constitution of the U.S., but do you think that people understand the significance of this distinction here, Chuck, and why is it that we've allowed our political leaders to violate their oaths of office and ignore, blatantly disobey the supreme law of the land?
2: Well, again, one of the major problems is because they're not being taught it in the pulpits. I mean yeah. I go back I would go back to colonial America. What was what was the difference between colonial America and America today? You know, there's a lot of similarities between that period of time and the period of time in which we're living today. And and quite and quite honestly, Sheila, there's a lot of great uh positive similarities. I mean, there's a lot of positive signs on the horizon here in our country. That's not all negative and, and I'm not a doom and gloomer by any stretch of the imagination. And I, and I see a lot of positive things happening. I mean there's there are state uh, legislators and, and governors and and attorney generals and, and you know uh, courts and so forth that are beginning to to push back against the overreach of federal government, especially out here in the West. You know, we're going through a major, um, I think, revolution, you could say, of of independence of of state uh, legislatures and so forth that are beginning to stand for the sovereignty of their states, independence of their states, and and against the overreach of the federal government. Uh, there is, you know, we're seeing people that are running for office today that are, you know, and many of them are getting elected that, you know, we had Ron Paul that uh, was about the only one we had in Washington for how many years. And now, you know, we can point to several. We're still not a majority by any stretch, but there's there's more now um, in the legislature than there than there has been in, in, in a long, long time. There's a lot of positive things that are happening. But what's the difference between now and then? The difference is we don't have the Patriot pulpit. That's what they had in colonial America. You had these these men of all denominations that were in their pulpits every Sunday, thundering forth these principles of liberty as found in the scriptures. They were teaching them, explaining them to the people, so that when it came time for us to fight our war for independence, etc., uh, there was no hesitation they they were absolutely prepared in their hearts in their soul and their mind and and they knew what they were doing was right there was no question about it why because of the ex- explanations the exegesis and the extrapolations of scripture from those black regiment pastors and that's why i've started the you know the liberty church project and we're trying to get out there and start patriot churches and and liberty churches, help people get out of the 501c3 monstrosity and start fresh, independent. And, And boy, we're having a huge response already from churches and individuals that are wanting us to help them. So, you know, over the next few years, we'll see what happens, Sheila. But I really think that if we don't resurrect the Patriot Pulpit and the Liberty Church, I don't think we're going to see a solution in this country.
1: Well, your Liberty Church project is important, and why it's so important, of course, amid the cesspool of these 501c3 churches, pastors are deliberately, like you said before, choosing not to teach biblical truth to their congregations for the selfish goal of being quote-unquote successful, and it's, it's time we came to grips with this and acknowledge that these pastors, this is shameless, and I think it's absolutely mindlessness and, you know, as that article Barna noted, I mean, it's the churches themselves, they've chosen to be separate from the political affairs of the country. You know, I think back to you, and of course you talked about your brilliant son, who is a constitutional lawyer, you wrote the book, To Keep or Not to Keep, and as we know, the debate over firearms rages, and on the heels, many in government are attempting, as you of course know, to pass laws disarming the American people, and your book really aims to equip Bible-believing Christians in America with some really specific tools. Tell our listeners about that and why this topic is so important for Christians,
2: Chuck. Yeah, thanks Sheila. Yeah, we had, well, we wrote Romans 13, the true submission first, and then um, when, when Mr. Obama and, and Ms. Feinstein uh, a year ago uh, tried to enact that egregious gun control legislation that would have made criminals out of, you know, millions and millions of honest gun yeah. owners, simply for the type, the type of rifle that they that they owned, uh as well as not you know, putting the gun owners of America into a national database gun registration. Uh it, it was a Hitlerian horrific legislation. And during that when that debate was raging, of course thankfully grassroots America rose up and they they couldn't even they couldn't even get it past the Democrat controlled Senate which nobody expected. Everybody thought it would sail through the Senate and the fight would be in the House, but it didn't even survive the, the U.S. Senate. And that was because of the grassroots American people that rose up in no uncertain terms, let their elected officials know they weren't going to put up with it. But during that several-month debate, what we noticed was that, the, the, again, <laughs> the, the churches and pastors totally silent, totally. Or they were going along with it. You know, well, if the government tells you to surrender your guns, then you should do that. And so we, you know, we quickly we got together he and I and we said, you know, we we've got to write a book about the Second Amendment and about the, the right to keep and bear arms again from a biblical point of view. And so we, you know, we just really hurriedly and and put it together as fast as we could, while at the same time, you know, really doing the research and 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 making the investigative analysis of Scripture as complete as possible, and we put up, I mean, we, we, we called it, to keep or not to keep, why Christians should not give up their guns. And once again, we go back and, and show from the entire body of Scripture that God never, ever expected, or much less commanded, his people to surrender their means of self-defense in the face of some governmental tyrant. Never been the case, ever. We, and we go back and we show in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus told Simon Peter to put up the sword. We talk about that. We show exactly what was happening there. We quote Jesus when he said just a few hours before that event, if you don't have a sword, go buy one, yes. even if you have to sell your clothes to do it. Uh, he told the disciples that. They told him, well, right now there's two of us that are carrying swords here in, uh, among the 12. Jesus said, very good. You know, They go from there to the Garden Uh, remember that the Roman sword that they were carrying was against the law. It was against Roman law for the subjected Hebrews in in Judea to carry the Roman sword. But they were doing it nonetheless, and Jesus commanded them to go buy one. And note that in the garden, whenever they left, Simon Peter walked out of the garden with his sword on his person. He never surrendered his, his sword, and they never... Took it from him when he left that garden, he left armed. Uh, just one example. You could go through the entire body of Scripture and so and show how that God has given to us a duty to defend ourselves. It's it's not just a right, as in the Bill of Rights, as as powerful as that is, but it is a duty. God has given us a duty to protect and defend the life that He has given us. In fact, the New Testament there's a verse that says, "If a man provide not for his own, he's worse than an infidel, and he's denied the faith." Well, what, what does it mean? Provide not for his own. Well, it means everything. It, it, it means food. It means shelter. It means security. It means self-defense. For a man to not be willing to defend himself and his family is to be is to be as an infidel, and he's denied the faith. So any Christian and any pastor that suggests that a Christian should surrender his firearms at the behest of some tyrannical government. What he's saying is, he's asking his people to become infidels. You know, you, you are removing from yourself the the, the duty of responsibility you have to provide for your family, and you're saying, no, I will not provide. I will not be. Uh, I will not be willing to to defend and protect. My, my life and my family. Well you' worse than an infidel. even infidels know that they have the duty to protect and defend their lives. So everything about the scripture is totally contrary to the modern uh, phenomena that we find in our pulpits about laying down your guns if the government tells you to do so. So that's why we covered it in the book. That's why we, we you know we went into the scripture, and showed it from a biblical perspective why Christians should not give up their means of self-defense.
1: Why is there so much shoulder-shrugging in the American church today, and it's crickets chirping on all the... Big issues like the NDAA, abortion, the gay thing. I mean, it's okay for ISIS to behead Christian, this butchering of our brethren lately that's just mm-hmm. evil incarnate. I mean, what is going on that there's just, you know, the shoulder-shrugging kumbaya
2: group? I don't get that, Chuck. Well, I think part of the problem, Sheila, is that we they're probably too comfortable. I mean, we probably all are. But I think this, this entire post-World War II generation... Now, generation several, um, you know, we've we've been raised more or less in the lap of luxury. We've had convenience and and comfort to the point that we we don't even really comprehend life without it. And I'm not sure that the Lord isn't going to have to make the church extremely uncomfortable before we'll be able to return to those fundamental principles and and duties that, you know, that we're obligated to. I'm, you know, I would hope that it wouldn't come to that, but I'm not so sure that it won't.
1: I mean, it just seems like, you know, when I, even if I look at a TV lineup today, anything on a primetime station, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing on today's debaucherous society. I mean, it just absolutely mind boggles me that anything goes nowadays. And you know what? Just accept everything, take everything. In the end, you always say it really does come down to we the people. I mean, if you want a church, folks, where the pastor is willing to teach the biblical principles that relate to our everyday lives, including our political lives, like you say, you might just have to vote with your feet and go find one. that is the kind of thing that really is important to you too, isn't it, Chuck?
2: yeah and i think that's i think that's really where it's at and that's not that's not a comfortable uh, position and no. i understand that and i you know i understand the affection that people have for, for their pastors for their church family their brothers and sisters many of them have a long standing tradition in these churches uh, maybe they have in, you know parents and grandparents that were you know raised there and i mean there's you know, there's a lot of elements that go into where people go to church and, and the meaning that, that the church may have in their lives. So I get that, okay? I, I really, truly do. But at the same time, our future is at stake. Our, our children's freedom is at stake. And yeah. the pastors that are not willing to speak out, whether they realize it or not, They are helping to put the chains of tyranny around the necks of our children and our grandchildren. So for the Christian parents out there who really do care about the future of our country, of their kids, grandkids, etc., and want to see freedom remain in this country, at some point you're going to have to say, wait a minute, this pastor is not helping maintain freedom in this country. This pastor is helping to enslave my grandchildren. You know, I'm not going to be content to sit here in this congregation and give these dies and offerings to this fellowship and support this ministry as, as emotionally attached as I may be, realizing that this congregation and this pastor are doing nothing to resist the tyranny that is enveloping our country. And I will therefore find a pastor who will fight for the freedoms of my children and grandchildren. I will make the effort, and and I, I until the Christians of, of the country, the the ones that are sitting out there in the pews, they know what's right. They believe what's right in their gut. They do until they begin putting some some feet action in in their heart and start looking for churches, supporting churches, the pastors. You know, I know a lot of pastors around the country that are really trying to to fight this fight. They really are a bunch of them out there. They're a minority, but they're a bunch of them. And what's the same story do you hear? The Christians pat them on the back once in a while, you know, maybe tip them something occasionally, maybe come by and visit once in a while. Eh, you're doing a great job, boy. And then what do they do? They go back to the... Establishment five oh one C three, say nothing, do nothing, hear nothing, church and pastor, and that's where they support. That's where they give their tithes and offerings. That's where their kids go to Sunday school. That's where they go to youth program. You know, that's where they support. And the pastors that are out there trying to fight the fight, you know, they're standing there all by themselves, with very few people behind them. And yeah. and that's the frustrating part. So you know, what I'm saying is, and you said it's we the people. That's exactly right. When we the people decide to get out of these entertainment centers yeah. we call churches. Social clubs. Social clubs. Glorified social clubs. Yeah. And get into some real churches with some real watchmen and some real prophets in the pulpit, you know, then you got no one to blame but yourself.
1: And I get it's hard because the, the watered-down, lukewarm church abounds. And it, it is very tough to find a liberty-minded church i mean can we turn things around here in your opinion i mean what is it going to take here for the church to grow a backbone here do you think chuck
2: well i know it would help if if the people in the pews that know what's right if they would do what we're talking about here if can you imagine i mean many of these churches are strapped financially which is another story isn't it but they're they're in debt (laughs) and they're you know they they A 5%, 7% reduction in income over a a period of of a few months would seriously do jeopardy to the vast majority of churches. Right now, you know, what's the motivation for the pastor? I mean, okay, he should have courage. He should do right because it's right to do. I agree. Give you all that. But here's a guy. He's standing in the pulpit Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. His church building is, is full. His offering plates are full. He's building buildings. He's hiring staff. He's, you know, having all these quote ministries unquote programs. You know, everything is rosy. Everything is fine. And so then, you know, some people come in and say, you know, Pastor, you know, you need to start speaking on the issues. Well, he doesn't do it. And what changes? Nothing changes. The offerings are still full. The church is still full. The programs are still going on. So where is the motivation for him to say, you know what, maybe I should start really speaking. But I guarantee you if 10% of his flock would come to him and say, Pastor, we've been sitting in your ministry for X number of months or years. You refuse to address any of the issues that are that are so pertinent to our future, our freedom, our kids, our, et cetera, and we're, we're just – telling you that if we don't get some positive action from the pulpit of this church for the future of our kids and and freedom in this country, we're going to find a pastor that will. That would get his attention. Unfortunately, so many of our pastors are like politicians. They don't see the light. They feel the heat. But right now, the congregations of the churches are not putting any heat on the pulpits to do anything different yeah and it should be the church is saying we're not going to put up
1: with this five oh one c three you take the legislation, you take the rules, and political correctness is killing us as a nation, and there's so much intimidation, but it really should be we should be telling them what to do, not the other way around, shouldn't it
2: well, you know the, the fact of the matter is that the church is in, is independent it's it's completely independent I mean that's the whole purpose of the oh pandemic. right, the separation of church and state right yeah it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the whole purpose is to keep the government out of the affairs of the church i mean the the, the church has a, an independent voice it has an independent mission you know everything about the church is completely separate from the the mission of government and and the purpose of government i mean there's no there's no connection and so for pastors and church leaders, trustees, deacons, elders, for them to sit back and and allow the government to dictate to them, <laughs> I mean, it is just frightening. It, it, it's it's incomprehensible. I mean, when you go back into history and you look at the at the men of God, the stories of courage and conviction that you read about from these men, and, and yeah. they were bold as lions. Uh, you know, the, those men would not have ex. Can you imagine those men in colonial America and early America that would have tolerated for once one letter? I mean, one letter, like we talked about earlier, would have been enough for them to go ballistic. Our I, forefathers would be shooting Chuck. And, oh, and, of course, we can thank LBJ for ruining everything, can't we? Yeah, LBJ. Boy, I tell you, uh, the guy was—he uh, was a genius in the way that he... That he orchestrated all that when you know there was no such thing as a five hundred one c three nonprofit tax exempt status before that code of the IRS was instituted by LBJ back in yeah. like fifty four, and the reason he did it, of course, was the people of Texas at that time were giving him fits for a lot of the liberal policies that he was trying to get through Washington. He tried, and and it was the pulpits. It was coming from the pulpits, and he, he was trying to how can I how can I get these Churches and pastor to leave me alone, and he, he can whether well, he came up with it by himself or somebody else, but he's the one that carried the water and came up with that 501c3 monstrosity. And it didn't happen overnight, of course, no, uh, but over a period of decades, it, it, it produced what we are today. I guess Paul's ministry
1: would have been a dismal failure when you compare him to the Osteen's Warrens and the, the Bill Eifels of the world, hey.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think all the apostles. I mean, whenever you look at the apostle Paul, you know, and when he came to the end of his life, and he wrote his own epitaph, basically is what he did in Second Timothy four seven, and he said, "I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith." That's it. He didn't say a word about it. The how many people were in his church, and say a word about offerings, not a word about programs, not a word about the size of his buildings, how many staff members he had. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. I mean, Well,
1: these other hucksters are fighting a fight to keep on the bestseller list and also their <laughs> super mega dome churches. I mean yeah. it, it's pretty staggering the the absolute contrast of the early church who again turned the world upside down and now you have a very you know, it's a very loosey goosey, anything goes politically correct, lukewarm. I call it, you know, it's a light Christianity today and I find that
2: very very disheartening. Eleven o'clock on Sunday morning is Christian happy hour. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, it's That's it's reality, it and a guy can
1: laugh, but it's actually quite sad, isn't it? What we've become.
2: Well, as we've been talking about this, this entire hour, it's it's more than sad. I mean, this is the life of our nation at stake. You know, yeah, it's, it's it's the entire future of our liberty is at stake. We are in a very precarious point in human history. I mean, we have to recognize that if liberty ever does collapse in the United States, I can't, uh, there was somebody on national television that I heard make this quote. I can't remember if it was Pat Buchanan or who it was, but it was a, it was a great quote. He said, you know, if, if America loo- really does lose its liberty, it would send the world into a thousand years of dark ages. I agree, and, and, and you know what? I think that that's true. I really do. I, I think it would send the entire world into dark ages for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, this is is the most precarious moment in human history since the shot fired heard around the world, and how the pastors and the Christians of America react over the next. Very very short period of time is going to have a lot to do with how this country goes. So there's a lot at stake here. We're not talking about something that's trivia. That this is this is as important as it gets. Yes. And for these preachers like Osteen and Heibels and Rick Warren and these guys to to treat the ministry as they do and and to have the leadership that they have. among the churches of America.
1: Joel Osteen himself just said recently, I don't really preach about the gay issue because I don't understand it. I thought, what is not to understand? The Bible's pretty clear on it here, Joel. I mean, it's amazing how, you're right, we are at a very critical precipice, and I think that liberty is so integral. You know, when you think of the... The forefathers, I mean, they didn't back down in the face of tyranny. You know, can you imagine them rolling over at a very important time? I think of the Minuteman and just think of how could we absolutely get to this point where it's just the shoulder-shrugging mindlessness, which is a good segue. Chuck, how can people get involved in what I think is so important, this Liberty Church movement?
2: Well, uh, can I give the website?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Okay, well, if they go to, to my my general website, ChuckBaldwinLive.com, it's all one word. My name, Chuck Baldwin Live, that's my radio show, ChuckBaldwinLive.com. And then from there, that they can see all of, the, all of the links to everything else, including the books that we referenced a few moments ago and how they can order, to keep or not to keep, why Christians should not give up their guns, or Romans 13, the true meaning of submission. And also on the front page, they'll see the liberty church project uh, link and they can go to that you know the, the main thing is is if we're looking for either ministers or laymen either either or who have maybe just a, a handful of people that are that are willing to start a a non-501c3 church it doesn't take many a dozen two dozen three dozen just just a handful of people that are willing to start, and there's an application form on the website that someone needs to fill out. that will start the process going. Our staff will get in touch with them. We'll start getting into the you know the wheres and and how and so forth from that point. and And then we'll and I have a team of people helping me. I'm not doing this by myself. And we' we'll, we'll get out there into these locations and start helping people start these non-501c3 churches. Or we have ministers who are facing the same kind of problems from from the other side of the pulpit. You know, there's a lot of good preachers out there that really wish they had a group of patriot Christians that they could minister to uh, because they're having trouble from the other side of the pulpit. So, you know, we can we can match up some of these groups of Christians Patriot-oriented, liberty-loving Christians, with the, these pastors that are looking for that kind of a flock, and and start getting these people together so that they can start, you know, um, engaging the culture with it with with this church, and also maybe it's an existing church where the pastor is trying to teach the people the liberty principles, and you know he maybe could use some help doing that. Well, we could we'd be glad to help him as well, even if it's an existing church.
1: Time to quit being armchair patriots here. I think it's, again, we're at a critical juncture in history, and it's imperative, people. I mean, I really encourage people to go to Weekend Vigilante. Of course, Chuck's website is linked there. Folks, get his books, support him. I think, again, this is so critical, the Liberty Church movement. Chuck, I want to... Thank you not only for coming on, but thank you for all the work that you have done, not just as a renowned pastor, but uh, one of the few, I think, that's really, really you know, been instrumental in, in providing this kind of information. And I think everybody should have a copy of these books. And, of course, get involved. Get this application, folks, and it's just so critical. I really believe it is. Chuck, I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight.
2: It's great. It's great to be with you again. Thank you so much for letting me come on the show, Shield. Folks, that was the
0: renowned pastor, Chuck Baldwin. Go to weekendvigilante.com and you can see his info there. Please get his book, Romans 13, The True Meaning of Submission, and To Keep or Not to Keep, Why Christians Should Not Give Up Their Guns. Those two books really should be on all the shelves of the Christians in the nation. And please check out Chuck Baldwin's Liberty Church Project. Again, all that information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Folks, one of the sponsors of this show is Steve Quayle from stevequayle.com. I'm looking for an additional sponsor for my airtime. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please email me. My email is on my website there at weekendvigilante.com. On a separate note, I want to remind you that this show is 100% listener funded. So if you are blessed by this ministry, please do what you can. And please don't assume others are doing it. We know that giving is an important kingdom principle, and if you take in the meat, it's only fair that you should... Do what you can. So I appreciate that very much, and I thank you in advance for that. Also, please remember that every Wednesday, so that is again tomorrow, Wednesday the 28th, we have our prayer team, and it's a conference call prayer team where we have people that call in from all over the country on a conference call-style prayer, and it's a powerful time of intercessory prayer for the nation. So if you are a spirit-filled believer and you would like to join that, please do. The information is linked there at WeekendVigilante.com. If you go down the website page on the right, there's a little picture there and you can click on the information. Please do join us if you so feel compelled. Thank you so much for tuning in today, folks. Tune in every day from 6 to 7 Eastern Time right here on Worldwide Christian Radio. Good night and God bless. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by Stevequail.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, Headlines and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting stevequail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.